Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features John Sifton, Asia Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch. Having previously served as a researcher and acting deputy Washington director, he now focuses on South and Southeast Asia, East Asia, the Middle East, and terrorism and counterterrorism issues worldwide. Sifton began working at Human Rights Watch in 2001, first as a researcher on Afghanistan and Pakistan, and then as a senior researcher on terrorism and counterterrorism. Here, he offers his expertise and knowledge on the subject of sanctions on the Tatmadaw particularly on Myanmar oil and gas, also known as Mogi, which is worth over one billion US dollars to the Myanmar military annually. If sanctioned, the blocking of the military's main source of income could prove decisive in changing the course of Myanmar's future. Let's start the conversation. So, John, thank you uh, for joining us. And we're really grateful that you took the time. Uh, We know how busy you are. So if you wouldn't mind just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background in human rights and how you got into all of this. Sure, absolutely. I'm not a Myanmar expert, and the expertise comes at Human Rights Watch from a staff of researchers who have worked between them on Myanmar for, for years now, conducting you know research on the ground, gathering facts. I've done research in Myanmar. I've gone there, but really the expertise is with our researchers. On advocacy, though, I have been working very much on Myanmar over the last 10 years relating to sanctions policy, because from 2011 on, there was a very robust debate in the United States and the European Union and other places about how and how quickly to relax sanctions on the Tatmadaw as a reward for taking steps towards democracy. Ultimately, the EU and the US decided to lift almost all of the sanctions on the Tatmadaw and cronies and others. And as a result, they lost a lot of leverage that they could have used to demand that the Tatmadaw remove itself more from civilian governance. You know, the big ticket item was the 2008 Constitution, which gave the military ridiculously overbroad powers and a 25% seat at, at the parliament and emergency powers that they invoked when they carried out a coup d'etat later. So, you know, the leverage to get that constitution changed and for the Tatmadaw to agree to more real civilian control was lost, which is in part one of the factors that allowed the coup to happen later. I'm not saying that that's why the coup happened, but it certainly didn't help that the sanctions had been released too quickly. What was the... um the objectives behind the EU and America in terms of lifting the sanctions so early, how did they benefit from that? What was the reasoning behind it? I think the thinking at the time was that the Tatmadaw needed to be rewarded. They had allowed people out of prison. They'd allowed thousands of political prisoners out of prison and allowed foreign journalists to come in, gotten rid of their blacklist, and that they needed to be rewarded. But our argument was there are a lot of sanctions on the table and you can withdraw them gradually. Initially, the United States agreed with us, and they had a policy of action for action. So for every good thing the Tatmadaw did, they would get a reward, like relaxing of a particular slice of sanctions. But ultimately, action for action was abandoned, and they just lifted broadly most of the sanctions after 2016. And John, like one of the things when they lifted all those sanctions is there was never really any accountability then. It was just like, okay, you've done good now, so we'll reward you. They didn't actually hold anyone to account for anything. It was kind of like forgive and forget. Is that what happened? That's right. Again, you can't blame this policy for what ultimately happened. It's more complicated than that. But it was a lost opportunity to set a stage for a more inclusive and representative democratic government. But there was other leverage. I mean, don't get me wrong. The International Monetary Fund you know, conditioning their interactions with the country on better budget transparency. You know, that was very powerful. But I just think the United States and the EU completely misjudged and never really understood the leadership of the Myanmar military. I mean, you said that it was 2016, did you, that they eventually got rid of all the sanctions? 
Yeah. And at the time, they did, said that we're not getting rid of them. We're suspending them and we can reimpose them. But, you know, it was clear that that was a ratchet that was only moving in one direction. The U.S. and the EU were naive about what reform was on the table. I think that they believed, which is shocking now to think about, I think they believed Aung San Suu Kyi and her party would seek reforms in the parliament and ultimately force some kind of showdown to amend the constitution. And that somehow magically the Tatmadaw would agree to give up power in the same way that the Indonesian military gave up a lot of its political power decades ago when the Suharto era ended. But that's just like, why do institutions give up their own power? They either get something in return or they're forced to. And I don't really get the sense that the United States and the EU thought through what they needed to do to empower Aung San Suu Kyi and her party to get them to agree to give up more power. They didn't give up much power. All they did was let her out of prison and let her run and take over civilian government. They still controlled the security services. They still controlled the GAD and the civil service. And they still had vast income and wealth from their enormous corporate holdings. And you know they're not just a the military. They are a corporate actor. They are a corporation. They are two corporations that control vast parts of the economy. And they didn't give up much of that at all. I mean, they gave up some, I admit that, but a lot of it they kept. Was there any kind of like potential objective of trade relations with the EU or or America? Oh, absolutely. The European Union eased trade and, you know, exports from Myanmar increased vastly after 2016. So, you know, there was more of an export market than, than ever before. But the big ticket items, you know, gemstones and the gas revenue and timber, not to mention illegal illicit activities. A lot of that was still kept off budget. And although the civilian government was trying to claw some of that money into the official budget that has parliamentary oversight, with some success, a lot of it remained in the top of those hands. And there's a sense that sanctions worked in the sense that it forced the military to negotiate with people and to release prisoners. So was that the first indication that sanctions are, you know, if used right, can yield good results? Well, I think people will debate until the end of days. And unless you someday conduct an oral history with the Tatmadaw leadership at the time of 2008 to 2000, whatever, 16, You'll never really know the answer because what was going on at the highest levels and the thinking and what their anxieties were and what their aspirations were is a question of theorizing. Some say that the final straw was talk of accountability and a possible criminal accountability, a UN tribunal at the United Nations. That was what scared them into moving towards a different path. And then culminating with the release of Aung San Suu Kyi. Some people say, you know, people thought, well, our economy is in shambles. Let's try to pretend to allow some reform so that we can get more investment. But you know, did sanctions work? Yeah, because regardless, there's no doubt that sanctions relief benefited cronies and the corporate part of the Myanmar military. But the problem was once democracy came, between the World Bank and IMF demanding transparency and the NLD sort of slowly clawing money and power away from them, combined with economic downturn because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we got to a point where the Tatmadaw felt threatened and we're running out of money. We're not running out of money, but like we're seeing losses to their revenue stream that they did not like. (laughs) So that may have been what combined and culminated in the decision to carry out a coup d'etat. And John, in terms of sanctions, like we have seen the US and we've seen the EU and the UK put sanctions, which seems fairly quickly this time. Yeah, yeah. The United States, EU, Canada and the UK imposed different kinds of sanctions over a period of time. Like they didn't all happen at once, although it was coordinated over time. It was on two types of entities. On the one hand, people. So leadership of the Tatmadaw, including Min Aung Lang himself. And that's for being implicated in gross human rights abuses, human rights sanctions, right? But then there's these other human rights sanctions that are on economic entities that are 
owned or controlled by the sanctioned entities or which benefit them or both. And that is a whole host of Myanmar military owned or controlled conglomerates and companies. Initially, it was in the gemstone sector and in certain business sectors. It expanded to finally include the overarching conglomerate, Myanmar Economic Corporation and Myanmar Economic Holdings Limited, MEC and MEL. Add to the mix Myanmar Gemstone Enterprise, Myanmar Timber Enterprise. By sanctioning these entities, you also sanction any of their subordinate companies, any of the companies they own, any of the companies they control. So that means like a whole host of other private companies that are under the control of the Myanmar military. So these are all sanctioned. But what does that mean? It means their assets overseas are seized if they have any. So if they have correspondent bank accounts in foreign currency, they can't withdraw that money. And those bank accounts are essentially frozen. And that includes, you know, US dollar denominated accounts. But the real sting is that no other companies outside of Myanmar can now do business with them, with these entities, which means you can't send them money, you can't invest in them, you can't sell them things, you can't buy things from them, and so on and so forth. So I can't, if I wanted to import valuable Burmese teakwood to build a yacht, right? I couldn't go and make a bid at the timber auction in Myanmar for some teak because that would mean I would have to pay a sanctioned entity, which I can't because then I get prosecuted by the U.S. Treasury or if I'm British by the British Treasury. So that's what it means to be sanctioned in that sense. Problem is that only captures a certain amount of the Tatmadaw's wealth because a lot of these entities initially are entities which make most of their money, not in dollars, but in local currency. and so. The sanctions don't hurt them in a sense because they're making money on the ground in Myanmar and anybody in Myanmar can do business with them. So if I'm a hotel in Mandalay, I can do business with a sanctioned entity because I'm not subject to U.S. Treasury laws. I'm not subject. So they didn't have a huge impact. They had impact on importing companies because they import stuff. You have to buy stuff internationally, but they didn't have impact on a lot of other stuff. The real source of the Tatmadaw's wealth is on exporting gas and gemstones and timber to foreign buyers who purchase these things in foreign currencies. So most of Myanmar's gas is sold to Thailand. Almost all of it that isn't consumed is given to Thailand and a little bit to China. And it's piped, literally piped right into Thailand and piped to China, offshore, onshore, then into Thailand. They are paid in dollars. They're paid in dollars at a foreign bank in Singapore or Seoul or Bangkok, U.S. dollar account in those banks. And this is all allowed to happen because the entity that's doing all those exports isn't sanctioned yet. It's the Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprise, also known as Mogi. And Mogi is not sanctioned. And so all that money, which amounts to over a billion dollars a year by some estimates, once you count both the price of the gas and the transportation fees, that money Thailand is paying to Mogi to this day and therefore to the Myanmar military. So that's not sanctioned. And then also you have a problem where with timber, for instance, yeah, I can't buy timber, but some Malaysian businessman can go in and buy it and then export it from Malaysia, pretending that it's from Malaysia. So there's all kinds of ways to elude the sanctions, evade the sanctions. And the end result is the Myanmar military is still getting massive amounts of U.S. dollar currency paid into accounts, which it can then use to buy weapons, aviation fuel, and pay its soldiers and bullets for their guns to fire at protesters. So the problem with the sanctions so far is that you know, they've been coordinated and rolled out on a lot of entities, but the big fish, the big whale of their revenue has not yet been captured. And John, I think Total did release a statement a while ago saying that they were withholding dividends. Is that correct? But I think that's a very small amount of money when people looked at it a bit more closely. Yeah. So with that, what that was about was essentially the money that's made off gas exploration is made in two ways. You obviously make money from selling the gas. It's a commodity. It's worth a lot. But you also make money charging for the transportation of the gas to Thailand. It's quite a fair amount of money. Not as much as the sale price, but it's a lot. And there's a company, they look through all of their dealings and they recognize that the transportation company that ships some of the gas they pump into Thailand 
is a jointly owned company and that they and the U.S. company Chevron together had a majority share in it. And they could, without breaking the contract, suspend payments to another part of the joint enterprise, which is Mogi, BMR military. And so they did. But we're talking about a slice of a pie. No, we're talking about a slice of a slice. We're talking about taking a slice and then slicing it. In the end result, it's about 5% of what the overall amount of money that goes to the Tatmadaw from oil and gas revenue. So it's really insignificant. And what it represents is the only thing that Total thinks it can do without breaking a contract, which raises the question, what would happen if they broke the contract? And our argument was, given how insignificant Myanmar is to Total's operations worldwide and Chevron's, why not break the contract and see what they do? Play chicken with them, as they say. That's an American expression, but like bluff and do it and see what they do. Are they going to nationalize the fields and bring in a separate pipeline operator? It's a dying field in the last five years of its life, maybe even the last three years of its life. It's not worth anything. What international gas company is going to come in and take over a field which has only got three years left of gas in it? I mean, they'd have to, and even if they could find a company with the technological know-how of Total to do this complicated work of running a pipeline and then reemploying all the Myanmar employees who work on the pipelines into Thailand and all of that, because would they walk off the job, the total Myanmar employees, if they got fired? That would mean the gas would stop flowing to Thailand and to Myanmar. And so Myanmar itself would, you know, be cutting off its own gas supply and cutting off the gas supply to its probably only and closest friend, its neighbor Thailand. Why would they do that? So that's been our argument to Total and to the U.S. and French government. I think what's really going on here is that the French government and the Thai government just don't want to do this. And Biden wants them to, but he's not going to do it. President Biden, the U.S. president, is not going to act on his own to do this because he doesn't want to antagonize two allies, France and Thailand. And he can't get them to agree. And so we're at an impasse. One of the arguments I hear time and time again, when this conversation comes up about Myanmar oil and gas is we can't, you know, in in advocacy groups, when they're talking about making this part of their advocacy, and the main argument is, if Total, you know, pull out of Myanmar, then China are just going to take over that. That is the number one thing that I've heard countless times, that that is why people don't want to fight for this, because, oh, if we put pressure on this, then China are just going to come in and then they're just going to own the oil and gas and they're going to take over that whole industry. What would you say to that? I'd say that's too simplistic and you have to actually know the details to make a statement like that. This is a gas set of gas explorations that are feeding into a pipeline that goes to Thailand and to a lesser extent already to China. So China's already in the game. They're buying gas from a joint Singaporean Mogi enterprise into Yunnan. But most of the gas is going to Thailand. There's a pipeline system. There's no liquefaction plant yet. So you're talking about China coming in and taking over? What does that mean? It means building a huge liquefied natural gas thing so that ships can come and take it to other countries. But what about the contract with Thailand? Thailand wants all this gas. And we already have agreements between the companies that do it, including a Chinese company. Is China going to antagonize both Thailand and Singapore and Korea to benefit the Burmese military? I don't think Beijing is particularly thrilled with the coup, not because they like democracy, but because it just makes everything complicated for them as they're doing a bigger thing, which is attempting to dominate Asia by forging close economic and political ties with Asian countries from Thailand to Korea and beyond and trying not to act like they're a hegemonic monster. Well, coming in and like taking over Myanmar's oil and gas fields is acting like a hegemonic monster. Now, would some Russian firm come in? Possibly, just to make money. I don't think Putin cares about any of this. But this argument that China's just going to come in and, and that China is seeking vast amounts of money, it's not that much money. It's a small ball in the grand scheme of oil and gas exploration. And I just don't see, you know, it being as simple as they say. The bigger concern isn't China dominant. The bigger concern is irrational acts by the Tatmadaw, like self-destructive slash suicidal acts, like 
cutting off the pipeline and then like asking for somebody to run it and then nobody being able to run it or bringing in an operator that doesn't have the technological know-how and damaging the pipeline system or the wells or both. I mean, to make these statements, you need to actually talk to the experts, talk to the energy people about this, about what oil is available now and what exploration is going to be in the future. You can't just like make these vague China will rush in arguments, which, by the way, are made everywhere. They're made in Cambodia. They're made with Thailand. And in terms of oil and gas, where do South Korea fit into all this? Because they're also benefiting here or involved in some way. Is that right? Yes, they were doing exploration and they're involved in the joint venture with Thailand to pump gas to Yunnan, China. So they are an operator. And if they had their way, they would be involved more in exploration as well. The Australian company Woodside also had some exploratory contracts that they were drilling off Rakhine State, believe it or not. They suspended those. Total had some exploratory work that they suspended. So no drilling is going on. Could Mogi suspend those contracts to Woodside and Pasco and Total and then give them to a Chinese company? Yeah, but then they'd be antagonizing some oil majors who they would prefer to keep on side. Because, you know, the bottom line is most countries would prefer to do business with the likes of Pasco and Woodside and Total than Chinese state-owned oil companies because they pay better, they're less bossy, and on average, they have better technological know-how to draw gas out of the ground. Because, you know, we're talking about drilling in like thousands of feet of water and then figuring out a way to like get the gas up in the most efficient way possible and for as long as possible. And it's not just like digging a hole in the ground. It's like complicated engineering. And some companies are better at it than others. And like, this is a billion dollars annually that the Myanmar military get from Myanmar oil and gas. So it feels like if all of the countries came together and placed those sanctions, that could take them down. It could be the final thing that could actually, like it would kill their biggest revenue. So it seems like a really huge thing that could be done so easily by countries. So why are they not doing it? Well, President Biden wants to do it. And I think many members of the EU would be prepared to do it. But President Macron and Prime Minister Prayut of Thailand don't want to do it. And the Biden administration is trying to repair four years of extreme unilateralism by being as multilateral as they can. And despite you know recent flat between France and the US because of an Australia submarine deal, which resulted in like a complete blow up by the French government against the Biden administration. You know, there is a desire to keep France happy. And in fact, now more than ever, because there's been a huge deterioration in the French-U.S. relationship, it's even more important to the Biden administration than ever not to do something to antagonize. Although I would argue, (laughs) this is a little bit complicated, but I would argue that since the relationship is now so bad, you might as well just go ahead and pull the trigger on one more bad thing. You know what I mean? Like, if we're going to break all the China, we might as well break one more piece of China, too, while we're at it. But then you have the problem with Thailand. Thailand, you would be really pissing off the government of Thailand if you did this without their coordination with them, because they're the buyers. They're the ones who are paying at all this. And, you know, we just all have to assume that if we somehow got this to happen, the Myanmar junta is going to go to the Thai government, to Prayut or to their friends in the Thai military and say, you need to make us whole. If you're not going to pay us a billion dollars this way, then you've got to pay us a billion dollars another way under the table. And so none of this is going to work unless Thailand agrees to it because they're 80% of that. You talk about a billion dollars, 80% of it is Thailand is paying through Thailand. And in terms of if Total were to relook at their business in Myanmar and say, okay, look, we can't do any ethical business here, like everything that's happening, human rights abuses, people being killed, and we're just we're just going to pull out. I assume if that happened, France as a government will be behind any sanctions in that case. That's probably the best strategy forward here now, because if they make a corporate decision, then it becomes much easier to basically go to France and Thailand and say, well, look, Total has got to pull out as a business decision. So now we have to figure out a way to do this. Because Either they do pull out and then everything you were worried about happens anyway, or we give them some kind of comfort so that they don't have to pull out. 
Because that's the whole thing. The ethical dilemma for Total disappears as soon as you sanction them. Because then they're like forced by law to not pay Mogi, not pay Miyama. They're forced by law. And so they stop paying them. Or more specifically, they're not the ones paying. Thailand is. So basically, there's a bill that gets sent to Thailand instructing them to pay Mogi. That bill is prepared by Total. So if Total says, don't pay Mogi, then Mogi doesn't get paid. So if they're forced to do that by law and they do it, their hands are clean. Mogi's not getting the money and they can keep operating because they can keep pumping gas and they can keep paying themselves because they get a cut of the money too, right? So they are no longer ethically or morally compromised because none of the gas money is going to the Tatmadaw. You know, one of the other things that I hear time and time again on this sanctions discussion, besides China and Russia are going to take everything, is it's going to hurt the people on the ground the most. And that doesn't make sense to me because I don't see how taking a billion dollars from the Myanmar military is going to affect anyone on the ground. But talk to us about that that idea people have and, and if that's correct or a misconception. It's off base and it's incorrect, both. It's off base because, as you said, when it comes to the sanctions on teak and oil and gemstones, that doesn't hurt the people unless you're like a miner in the ruby mines. And even then, it probably wouldn't because they circumvent the sanctions and sell to China. So, yeah, the big ticket item sanctions don't hurt the people of Myanmar. Sanctions on the banking sector would. Sanctions on the central bank of Myanmar would. And arguably, the New York Fed's decision to cut off the central bank of Myanmar from its foreign currency reserves arguably hurts the people of Myanmar. And we would ask that the New York Fed and the U.S. Treasury and the World Bank try to negotiate with the central bank of Myanmar so that they can at least access some of their funds for legitimate central bank purposes, like balancing payments in foreign currency and stabilizing local Myanmar currency. I mean, that's what we're asking in the case of Afghanistan, which just got taken over by the Taliban. We're asking the World Bank and the U.S. to figure out a way to have limited transactional exposure for the central bank of Afghanistan so that they can avoid a broader economic meltdown that will hurt the people of Afghanistan more than the Taliban ever. So it's the same thing here. I mean, you can make an argument about that. But on the sanctions, no way. It's just not there. Unless you were to sanction the banks, that would have a knockoff impact on the ordinary people for sure. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about broad sanctions. Now, there are some in the CDM movement who are. And I appreciate that. And I don't want to speak for what the CDM movement wants. I don't want to speak for a single citizen of Myanmar. Let people of Myanmar speak for themselves. But our experience has been that most people advocating for sanctions, whether Myanmar citizens or outsiders, are not advocating for the types of sanctions that would harm ordinary people. They're focused like a laser on sanctions that would harm the Tatmadaw. And just, John, I don't know if this is something you would want to answer on or not, but In terms of Myanmar's labor movement, they have come out and said that there's no longer any ethical way to do business in the country and is calling on comprehensive sanctions and for companies like fashion brands like Zara, H&M, Adidas to cease their operations in Myanmar. And then people argue that, yeah, this has to happen because of how the garment workers are being treated and that they've got the full support of the garment workers with the unions. Others say this is a miscalculation. The unions don't have a clue what's happening on the ground and it's only going to damage people on the ground. What, what's your take on that or, or do you have a position on that? I will let them speak for themselves and I am not going to disagree with it as a strategy because you have to look at the underlying strategy itself and, and what it really is because the theory of change isn't this is going to hurt the Tatmadaw solely. The theory of change is the same thing as the theory of change of the CDM movement itself, which is that broad resistance is a sabotage of the general economy of the country. I mean, that's their strategy. And I'm not going to argue with it. And if calling for brands to stop buying is part of that strategy, then so be it. It's distinct from the question of what kind of sanctions are you calling for? Because I don't think, yes, technically and linguistically, it's a sanction. So it gets bundled into the sanctions discussion. But what's really going on when the unions request that move is that they're basically asking the international community to take part in the CDM. That's how I see it personally. Maybe others can, but that's personal. I see it as basically a part 
it's an outgrowth of the theory of change of the CDM movement itself. It's not part of the sanctions debate as such, even though it is, in fact, technically a sanctions issue. Yeah, I think that's actually a really great way that you just explained the difference, because I think you're right. And anyone I have spoken to who is very supportive of this is involved heavily in the CDM movement. And they see this as a tactic, as part of a, a wider picture of bringing the military down and, and this refusal to work, rather than, as you're saying, foreign companies or foreign governments putting sanctions on the military. They're two separate things. But I guess the point is the Myanmar people know that they're going to hurt, you know, and they're willing to. Like so many of them have already walked out of their jobs. The garment workers were one of the first to lead the protests early on. So I think that, I mean, it's a sign of maybe how bad things are, that people are willing, knowing that they're not going to have any income uh, and still willing to, to do that in order to try and end the military. I think that's right. And I would go a step further on the point about sacrifice. It is totally, totally ethically and morally and politically distinct for policymakers who are not Myanmar citizens to craft policy about a theory of change on how to change the Tapada versus people who are making a decision to engage in sabotage that will hurt themselves in the process. So in other words, the moral decision of individual citizens of Myanmar to like make sacrifices themselves in order to achieve an end is completely different than the policy decision that a bunch of people in Washington and Brussels are making about how to affect the Tepedo's thinking. Because ethically and morally, policymakers in Washington cannot ask citizens of Myanmar to make sacrifices. That is a decision for the people of Myanmar themselves to make. All the policymakers in Washington can do is come up with ways to punish the Tepedo in as focused a way as possible. That's the distinction I see. I think it's an important distinction as well, because, you know, people do seem to associate sanctions with policymakers, as you say, and this, the garment workers, this is a separate, like, this is them, not policy analysts, like, speaking about what they want to do and why. But also, you know... I guess it is a little bit, I guess now that I think about it, though, it is a little bit fraught ethically and morally, because you're asking international people to help you do something that will cause you harm. So in other words, it's like physician-assisted suicide. Like you're asking a third party to do something that will harm you as part of your strategy to harm the Tepeda. And so it puts, you know, H&M and garment companies and trade ministers in Europe in a kind of funny moral position. And I appreciate that. But I think when you're in a position like that, you should just default to listen to the citizens of Myanmar. Like don't second guess them. And if, you know, there's broad agreement about a strategy, you got to go with it. You can't just say, we know better than you. That's the definition of patronizing. And do you think, John, that the only way to, I mean, I don't even know if dialogue is possible with this military anymore when I look at, at how people are turning against them all across the country. But is these sanctions the best hope of taking them to a dialogue table or to removing them from power? Like It seems to me like the most helpful solution to especially the, the Myanmar oil and gas industry to sanction that and to, you know, put them under that kind of financial pressure. That's the idea. I mean, the idea is dialogue isn't going to yield any dividends until the people engaging the dialogue have credit and debit to trade, have chips to play. And right now, even if you find an emissary who can act as a shuttle diplomat between concerned governments on the one hand, the United Nations on the one hand, and the Tamadou on the other. So even if you find some diplomat or former general from ASEAN or wherever, they have to have a message to send where they say, if you do X, we will do Y. And right now, that envoy is not armed with enough chips to play. If you sanction Mogi and you enhance enforcement on gemstones and jade and you start cutting off, you know, aviation fuel that you know is being used by the military and, you know, God knows what else. If you start doing all that, then the envoy has chips to play. They say, well, you're in quite of a pickle now. You lost your access to your foreign currency reserves. You lost a billion dollars in gas. You're selling teak at 50% of what you used to sell it at because you have to sell it to shady, you know, criminals. You're bleeding money, but we can help if you, you know, take the following steps towards restoring democratic rule, then we can take our foot off some of these sanctions or not me, the emissary, but the Americans and the Europeans and Singapore, you know, because the emissary will be delivering the message on behalf of like the sanctioning party. 
But right now, if you found such a person, that person would not have enough to offer the Tatmadaw to make them do anything. And now there's one more card on the table, though, which is accountability. The more we talk about accountability, the more we talk about gathering information of crimes against humanity, not to mention the genocide that occurred after 2016. That's another, because that's just going to, the more they see that, the more they play into being a completely uncooperative force when it comes to investigating abuses by the military itself, the worse that's going to get. And so that is also a motivating factor for them to steer in a new direction. I listened to you speak on the um, Foreign Affairs Committee back in May for the UK. And just in terms of their involvement, I think they're the pen holder for the UN in terms of their genocide and in terms of accountability and sanctions. You gave some really good suggestions, as did a few of the speakers. I just wondered how far you thought that the UK had followed through all the things that were suggested to it. Not a lot. The foreign minister then, foreign minister Dominique Raab, you know, wanted to pursue a more robust set of steps. But I think 10 Janning Street just wasn't as energetic as he was. And so the situation has remained as it was, which is the status quo. It's shocking to us who work with the UN Security Council on countries all over the world, from Venezuela to uh, you know Syria and South Sudan and Afghanistan, the amount of inaction the Security Council has shown on Myanmar. And it's basically because the penholder, the United Kingdom, has simply failed to plot an aggressive confrontation with China and Russia, which is the only thing that would get you forward movement. We're not going to get a resolution that, you know, refers the situation to the International Criminal Court, because, of course, China is going to veto it and Russia will go along with it. But if you want to soften the playing field and prepare for a UN resolution someday that imposes, say, an arms embargo on the Zatmano, as of right now, China would veto it. But if you want to soften the playing field to get to the place where China might agree to that, you got to start. you got to start pushing. you got to start fighting. You're never going to get to that unless you start fighting, and the UK hasn't done that. What they should be doing is tabling a resolution with an arms embargo or a threatened arms embargo and then forcing China to explain why they're against it and then, you know, debating and then putting China in the box, you know, looking like they're supporting a genocidal barbaric regime. You got to do it smart because if you do it like sloppy and, you know, principled without strategy, then you end up like what France did with Syria, where they tabled resolutions on Syria and they just died because they were vetoed over and over again by Russia. It's like, what's the point in that? What's the point of smashing your head against the wall repeatedly? It doesn't do anything. But if you do it smart, and you recognize that China is not happy about this situation, and China is also not happy about the fact that its own assets in country are at risk because of the instability. You can get to a place where China might agree to a resolution that at least threatens an arms embargo. That's what happened with South Sudan, you know. They finally, after years of pushing, they got China to agree to a resolution that threatened an arms embargo on South Sudan because of its human rights abuse. Of course, it didn't help that some Chinese peacekeepers have been killed. I mean, it didn't help South Sudan. But the fact remains, China will agree to things. It's not just like a, you know, lost cause at the outset. But right now, the foreign ministry of the UK and 10 Downing Street are just not being vigorous or robust about this. It's just like strategic patience. And we've told them time and time again that that's just not going to cut it. But I guess one other option is for other members of the Security Council, and Ireland, you know, is on the council for a while, to step up and just demand them to do that. And that's what we said to the Americans. It's like, look, if your British colleagues are unwilling or unable to do this, when are you going to step in? And it's not written in stone somewhere that the UK is the penalty. It's like a relic of colonialism that they are, you know? So like, Let's just move on. If they're not willing to do it, then maybe the UK should take up the lead. Absolutely, yeah. Dominic got the sack today, Dominic Rab. So I don't know if his replacement, I think it is Liz Truss. Liz Truss is the new Dominic Rab. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for Myanmar. And our Irish guy, Simon Coveney, has survived a vote of no confidence in government yesterday. <laughs> So he's been very poor all round in every aspect. So I'm, I don't feel much hope with him on the Security Council. But maybe this, this reshuffle in the UK could yield some good results. But I have heard people say that Dominic Raab has been great on sanctions. Even if he's not been great in other areas, he has been quick to sanction the military this time. Yeah. And I think that was shared by another British human rights activist who is active on Myanmar, 
uh, Ben Rodgers that, you know, he was surprised Dominic Rob ended up being quite good on a number of issues. But yeah, he's gone. And now I mean, maybe there's an opportunity to turn over New Leaf. But ultimately, you do need 10 Downing Street to, like, approve of this. And it's not that 10 Downing Street has been, like, stopping aggressive action. It's more that they're so lukewarm about it and sort of indifferent that it hasn't been pushed, which is in marked contrast with, say, previous governments like Prime Minister Cameron on Sri Lanka. He got totally fired up about pursuing like maximum pressure on Sri Lanka on its human rights record because of the brutal atrocities the Sri Lankan military committed against its own people at the end of the civil war in 2009. And he was very actively pushed. And if you get that type of hands-on pressure, then you'll see the permanent representative in New York pushing a strong set of resolutions in New York. But that's just not happening. And that's, that's not helping. But it's all going to be triangular. Like, this is all together. Sanctions, international accountability, arms embargo. It's got to be like a multifaceted, multi-front campaign with the end result of the Tatmadaw being boxed in and forced to admit to itself at the top leadership that it needs to change its behavior or results in the top leadership of the Tatmadaw becoming weak and disjointed and at war with itself which might lodge a change in the type of itself, you know, because at some point you have to ask yourself, are we trying to change behavior? Or are we trying to destabilize the regime so that it like morphs into a different regime that will change its behavior? You know what I mean? I'm not talking about like a coup d'etat, but I'm just talking about there's behavioral change and then there's leadership change. And sometimes you have to have the leadership change and then the behavioral change. And the one thing I'm wondering then, like how much will Minong Lang have factored in sanctions when he decided to, you know, take over the country because they've been through this before in terms of sanctions. So surely he would have calculated this and what would happen. So does he have a plan for, you know, robust sanctions, even on every industry? Like, do you think that he would have calculated that that might happen? We suspect, although it's not a confirmable hypothesis, but we suspect that they underestimated how many sanctions would be imposed. And that they're already somewhat surprised that the Europeans went ahead. I think they were thinking that the Americans would go ahead, but that they would be weak and rather toothless sanctions. But they probably correctly predicted that the gas revenue wouldn't be cut off. And so far, they've been right. So that's our argument. Like, prove them wrong. And then you'll see them just say, oh, oh wait, because I, I think you're right. I think they calculated that they could survive this. And they baked into that calculation was a prediction that the Americans would not impose sanctions on the oil and gas revenue. And so far, they've been right. But there's another distinction, which is back then, they were much less integrated into the international economy. They didn't have massive imports to Europe and textiles. And I mean, it grew hugely in 2016 to 2020. And I don't think maybe they calculated the extent to which sanctions would impact some of their business interests because their business interests were different than their business interests were in 2011, insofar as their business interests were more internationally integrated than they were back then because there were more foreign investors, more foreign money, more exports, more imports, you know? So there's a different situation. Sanctions have a different impact now than they did 10 years ago because the economy of Myanmar is fundamentally different. So they, they're not economy, and it shows. So they may have miscalculated the effect on the international side of their economy. And I'm talking outside of the oil and gas sector. For people then, for the average person in the West who wants to help Myanmar, what can they do in terms of putting pressure on their own governments with sanctions, like write letters, sign petitions, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, it's kind of a special case because there's a uniquely large number of Burmese citizens outside of the country. And there's diaspora groups in Australia, the UK, the United States has hundreds of thousands of Burmese citizens. A lot of them are not Burman or you know, ethnic minority groups, but God knows everybody shares their hatred of the Tatmadaw. That is the one thing that all civilians of all ethnic stripes can agree on. And so galvanizing and supporting Burmese communities is just as important as writing to your MP or writing to your congressman or congresswoman in the U.S. Helping those diaspora communities, both just helping them in general, because a lot of them are helping resettle new refugees, but helping them also 
supporting them, giving financial assistance to the groups that are engaged in advocacy is vitally important because I've seen members of Congress, members of parliament in multiple jurisdictions become more galvanized on Myanmar precisely because constituents, Burmese constituents, reach out to them. We've had members of Congress from random places, Arizona, Massachusetts, taking up the cause of Burma and its human rights record precisely because constituents, Burmese constituents, organized and wrote to them and met with them and essentially forced them to push on these issues. And it's a unique, especially in the United States, it's a uniquely bipartisan matter. Like there's not a lot of people agree on in the United States across the political divide between Republicans and Democrats. But there's a few places where there's almost lockstep agreement about everything. And one of them is Burma. You know, North Korea, Burma. These are areas where Republicans and Democrats have historically agreed about sanctions policy, about, you know, accountability for the Tatmadaw's crimes. I mean, the leader of the Republican Party in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, has ne never lifted a finger for human rights globally, except for Burma. He's got a portrait of Aung San Suu Kyi on his office wall. I mean, you're sort of through the looking glass. Myanmar is different than any other country when it comes to bipartisan or nonpartisan agreement in the United States. And how important is the Burma bill, getting the Burma bill passed? Because I, I know a lot of Myanmar people in the U.S. have been really pushing and ringing Congress and lobbying as much as possible, but they still haven't managed to get that Burma bill passed yet. Yeah, and they should continue to do that because that's an important piece of legislation. In reality, the way it works is, you know, if it passes, and it should, and a similar passage in the House, Senate and House both pass some kind of Burma bill. The real reality of the situation is that um, it wouldn't pass as a bill itself, but it would then be cannibalized, as they say. We would cut the Burma language out of it and put it into the annual spending bill that Congress has to pass every year to fund the U.S. government. Problem is, because of partisanship and the dysfunction of our democracy in the United States, uh, there may not be a spending bill. There may only be what they call a continuing resolution. It's like a piece of paper that says, keep spending money the way you did last year. If they do that, then you can't have the Burma bill get folded into it. So then we have a problem. So then we have to switch gears and actually pass the bill. And that'll be hard because it means you got to like get it onto the floor. You got to get it up to the top. It, you know, it's not easy to pass legislation in Washington. So we just have to decide as we go. But it's an important bill. And the best thing to do is just reach out to constituents, help Burmese community actors do the same and send the message like you need to pass this bill. What does the bill do? The bill basically compels the State Department to adopt a more aggressive reporting on human rights abuses and more aggressive sanctioning via the Treasury and state working together. And it directs the U.S. vote at the World Bank to basically you know, not allow money to go to the Tatmadaw. It does some other things, but that's the main purpose of it. As with many things in Washington, the Biden administration already has the authority to do these things. It would just be Congress kind of forcing them to, you know what I mean? It's like the Biden administration could be more robust today, tomorrow, tonight. But Congress pushing them is, you know, what can help make them do what they already should do. I guess, John, the last thing I kind of wanted to ask you about was when I think of all of the people who are advocating for Myanmar all around the world right now, and for a lot of people, it's their first time ever to be involved in something like this. And you have obviously been involved in human rights, you know, most of your life. It's a long process and it can be incredibly slow to see progress. So kind of I'm looking for words of encouragement for these young activists out there now who are maybe a little disappointed. We saw the UN this week, you know, again, just delaying a decision on who's going to represent Myanmar and almost putting a gag order on, you know, John Moton. And, and things like this is very disheartening because so many people have been advocating so hard for this recognition at the UN and they haven't got it. So do you have any kind of words of encouragement, like small steps and you'll get there eventually not to give up kind of thing? Well, it's hard to because I think, you know, we all have to acknowledge that we don't know what's going on inside of the head of the leadership of the Tepano. And so it's hard to like make predictions about anything because how can you predict something you don't understand? But we do know some things. We know that there is some rationality in their activities, even as there's irrationalities at other times, and that money speaks and it's persuasive. We know these things to be true. And so, you know, we will continue pushing on these issues. But when will it happen? Impossible to predict. 
What I would say, though, is that nobody should get super set back or depressed. Nobody should simply assume that because things aren't working, they never will work. A long time ago, a much more experienced human rights advocate told me a really wise thing, I think. He said that it's always the case that the policymakers disagree with your recommendations right up until the moment that they agree. And in general, it's true for all situations. It's like it always is the case that your cause is failing right up until the moment it succeeds. So don't be discouraged by the lack of success. That's all I got. <laughs> and that's good, John, because I just know it can be disheartening for people. But I know when we talk to other people, you know, you get that little victory, you know, it comes, you know, eventually. And you just have to keep pushing through as many knocks as you get back. But, There's uh, one other thing I can yeah. think of, though, which is the separate thing, which and this comes up a lot with the Taliban and Afghanistan and with Cambodia and its abusive regime and Thailand and its abusive military government. And it's that there's no way to know how many atrocities and how many cases of brutality and how many horrendous things didn't happen because the regime doesn't want to further antagonize the human rights community and the outside governments. So what I'm saying is like, this is a brutal rights abusing military junta that has killed thousands of people and imprisoned thousands more, but they could kill even more people and, you know, be even more brutal. And we don't know whether all these efforts have prevented that or not. And it's quite possible that they have. And that's a victory in its own very tragic and sad thing to celebrate as a victory, but it is, it's something. I think that's a really good point, actually, when you say that, because, yeah, I have no doubt in this case there will be a lot more deaths if they were not under the kind of pressure that they are from human rights groups, definitely. And we've seen prisoners released even, you know, things like that is all a sign of, of pressure being put on them because they're not doing it for their own benefit other than if the right people are putting pressure on them. So it's actually a really great point you make. Sometimes you might not see the success, but maybe you're preventing things. Yeah, that's really great. I can't remember the details, but I believe the UN Special Rapporteur or the fact-finding mission. In any case, one of the members of the UN special mechanisms uh, that were created after the genocide started in 2016 said something along the lines of the pattern of abuses committed against the Arakan people in Arakan more recently were of a different type and less comprehensively brutal than the atrocities committed against the Rohingya. And it's possible that it was in part because of the exposure of the horrendous atrocities committed against Rohingya that the Tatmadaw was slightly less, slightly less horrendously horrible in their abuses against Arakan people in Arakan areas. I don't know if that's true or not. It may be more of a feature of different ethnicity and a different sort of treatment of Arakan versus Rohingya. To me, there's like three levels of things that mitigate and or lessen brutality. And the first is just transparency and exposure. Like the more eyes and ears are there, the less horrible the atrocities, even though there still will be atrocities. And then accountability. Now there's no accountability, so that's on the table. But you know, the more exposure, the more like eyes and ears on the ground. The fact that the internet does come on and there is social media and there are videos that come out is helping, I think, make it slightly, maybe a little bit less brutal than it otherwise would be. But it's still intolerably brutal. I, just, mm. I think that the, yeah. you know, a little bit of transparency can help. It definitely is. I've seen some horrific videos today of people burned alive. It's it's absolutely horrific. Just, yeah, still very brutal. Very, very brutal. No, no. I don't mean to minimize. No. Yeah, no brutality I is unquestionable. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Uh, some of those tactics like that they've been exposed, they, they probably had to tell their men to, to roll back a little bit on that. Yeah, I, I think a difference for the, a lot of the images that I've seen is it's been male. It's all been young male, whereas like a lot of the atrocities that were committed against the Rohingya were female as well. That's in fact what the UN Special Mechanism said. They said there was a marked decrease in the proportion of atrocities that were against women, you know, including the use of mass rape in particular, just like not on the game cards anymore even though it's been in the game cards in ethnic areas in the North and with the Rohingya situation. But again, who knows what the realities are of like causation here, but I'm just trying to make the larger point that you, know, you think you're not accomplishing anything. You think that they're totally above the law and they're above reproach and they're above shame. 
And for the most part, they are. But like, we have to assume that if we keep up the exposure, keep up the investigations, keep up the pressure on international actors to take steps on both sanctions and pursuing accountability and evidence, that it, one day, also, it's the only hope we have. What else? Do you have another theory? Help everybody escape? Like, give up on Burma? Just like, because nobody is suggesting giving up. So what else can we do except keep investigating and exposing? Uh, and again, I think not only with Myanmar, but sanctions send a message around the world to all countries or anyone who's thinking they might do something like this somewhere else, you know, that there's a heavy price to pay for it. So I, I think they are really important. And I think it's great. Oh, that you are so it. right. You are so right about the setting an example. And in fact, there is no doubt in my mind, although I have no direct proof, that <laughs> there's no doubt in my mind that these people talk to each other, that Prime Minister Hun Sen of Cambodia and General Prayuth of Thailand, you know, these guys talk to each other and they, you know, give each other advice about how to like deal with the Americans, deal with the UN. And, you know, when you do something for one country, you're sending a message about what you're going to do in another. And the fact that Thailand's Hunter got away with everything they got away with, and their sham democratic election in which they elected their own guy and then dismissed the parliament as like a figurehead. Of course, it set the stage for the hunter to be like, well, we could do that too. And they were wrong because Thailand has incredible military significance to the U.S., which meant the U.S. wasn't going to punish them. But the point remains, like the U.S. weak response on Thailand helped pave the way for the Tatmadaw's calculations going into the coup. Although I really, ultimately, the Tatmadaw was broke. They were losing money. And I think the biggest factor of all was that they were a bunch of broke, a bunch of broke guys. And they were like, we have to take over again. Yeah, I just hope that we can um, end them. <laughs> I just like it, it's horrible what's happening there. It's really difficult for us to watch it. And I just really hope I, I think sanctions is just like the easiest thing to do that could have such a huge impact without bloodshed, without anything like just, you know, a kind of simple solution. It is kind of weirdly simple. It's weirdly simple given the consequences. The reason it's simple is because the Tatmadaw is not just a military, it's a business. I mean, in a lot of other countries like Cambodia, there's a lot of corruption, but the big corporate actors are not all like private actors. They pay kickbacks to the government, of course, but how do you sanction the government in a situation like that when on paper they don't own anything? The situation is the exact opposite here. Tatmadaw owns everything. And so it's so easy to sanction them. You know, and that's what makes it mind-boggling that you wouldn't use this easy tool that you have in this case. So who do we need to put the most pressure on then? <laughs> the UK, is it? Is that where we'll start? No, no. So the UK is all about the UN Security Council. No, on the sanctions, on the sanctions, it's all about the French government and the Thai government agreeing to this and Total and Chevron. Because again, if Total and Chevron make their own corporate decision that they need to pull out, that forces Thailand and France to act and do things that will allow Total to keep operating, i.e. sanction them. And I know it's it's very weird. People get very confused about this. Why would Total want to be sanctioned? They want to be sanctioned because then they're forced to do something they can't do legally under their contract. It's like when COVID first hit, right? All these movie theaters and theaters in New York City, right? They wanted to close down because it's a pandemic, but they couldn't because if they closed down, they would all start suing each other. The theater owner would get sued by the producer. The producer would be sued by the union. But if the city of New York forces all the theaters to close, then it's force majeure. Force majeure is the concept under contract law that you had no choice but to break the contract. And so therefore you're not liable. You're not responsible. And that's what we need here. We basically need total to be forced to do something. And they know it. They know that to do the right thing, they need to be forced to do it. I mean, they have been involved in Myanmar for a very, very long time. They don't seem like people who really are, you know. The world's changed. Mm, that's true, too. The world has changed. The world has fundamentally changed over the last 10 years. It's now the case, A, that if sanctions are on the table, the U.S. Treasury will, in fact, enforce them even on non-U.S. companies and fine them. I mean, you know, that's just a fact. BNB Paribas, the French bank, got fined $9 billion for violating sanctions in three countries. So there's a fundamental change there. And then the other fundamental change is that the EU and the French government have new laws that make it easier for human rights victims to sue corporate actors who are supporting abusive actors. So there's a 
there's a risk factor here that you could ultimately have litigation against Total for complicity in human rights abuses by the Taliban. And they know that, which is one of the reasons, you know, half on one side, they would be okay with it. Their, their statement said when they suspended the dividend, which was just 5% of the payments, they said that if they're sanctioned, they will do what they're told. So it's like they are open to this. It just has to happen. Thanks so much, John, because we know that you work on many countries and with Afghanistan now, I imagine that your world is very busy. So we do appreciate you taking the time. It's really great. Thank you, John. Like your knowledge is just wow. And you've just like really explained things so well and taught me a hell of a lot. So I'm sure everyone listening will find it really beneficial. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A H N A H. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.